Our scripture from this evening is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when <clears throat> Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, Please be with us this evening and send your spirit to enlighten us and help us to understand more fully the familiar Christmas story. Help us to realize what that means for us that your son Jesus came to save us from our sins. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good evening again. Well, it's good to be here with you all this evening to celebrate the arrival of Jesus as we continue in our Advent series this evening and Christmas Eve. So tonight we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. It's a familiar story. Let's admit it. We, myself, us, we can take Christmas for granted. It comes every year. We become so familiar with the stories that we functionally tend to disregard them. At least that's what I realized this week as I was preparing for our time this evening. It had dawned on me that I hadn't much thought of Christmas until my calendar said to prepare a Christmas Eve message for you all. I'm a man of routine. I like repeating the same thing over and over again. My kids are probably laughing. I don't need to change anything if things work right. Each day before we have a meal, We'll pray, and I pray the same thing every evening. But I have to be honest, sometimes I don't really consider the words that I pray. Each evening, I'll pray for my children before they go to bed. And I have four children, and I did some math of the number of days that they have collectively been alive. It's 17,500 days. And I'm not exaggerating. I have probably prayed that prayer at least 17,400 days. Not every day. I'd be curious how many times I was distracted while praying those prayers. So just let the words come out of my mouth without much consideration to just go through the routine because it's the right thing to do. 
And so as we gather tonight, friends, I ask that you not allow this night to just be another time to gather on Christmas Eve with God's people. Maybe you'd rather be home preparing for supper tomorrow or wrapping those final presents or putting together that massive Lego castle that you're really dreading putting together tonight. Or maybe you'd rather just watch some football or maybe be alone. But I pray that this Christmas doesn't pass like many others without considering what really has taken place and its significance in our lives. That God's Son is born. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us in your word what has taken place so that we might worship you, we might love you, we might follow you, we might believe in your Son and receive eternal life. Forgive us for the times in which we have not considered these things and its significance. Would you allow this evening to be a time of worship because of these marvelous things that we see in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we, and as we jump into Luke chapter 1, we have three points this evening because we have three kings mentioned. And it is not based on the song, the old Christmas song, We Three Kings. Those are based on the three wise men that come and visit Jesus. But we have three different kings in Luke 2, listed in order of importance that I think the world would show significance towards. The three kings are Caesar Augustus, David, and Jesus. Let's look at the first. Caesar working in these real circumstances. The first couple of verses. Again, I'll read them. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So you're all familiar. We all did world history in school. And Julius Caesar, the famous Roman Caesar, who was betrayed by his friend Brutus, after his death, Augustus, his nephew, became king, or Caesar. This is Caesar Augustus. And he put out a decree to go take a census of all of the people under his rule. Augustus is the most powerful man living on the earth at this time in history where we have real circumstances where God's Son comes into the world and is born. When the most powerful man in all the world tells all the people under his rule to go and take a census, the people, they obey. They respond. They listen. They go. And God uses this to fulfill prophecy by his providential hand, wisely applying his sovereignty and control over all circumstances. Quirinius, he's a local leader, marks these events too as a real event on a calendar, showing that these two leaders are lining up at the same given time. Whereas Caesar is like the president of the United States, and Quirinius would be like the governor of a particular state. And Caesar, he wanted to take an accounting of his people, to know how large his influence had spread. And censuses in the ancient world, they're not like ours where it would determine how many congressmen or women they would have representing them, but it was a way to show how much influence the Caesar had, but also how much taxes he could expect to receive. Censuses in the ancient world were a way for the king to display his rule and his reign 
and his power. Because Caesar is a powerful man. He's a prideful man. He says, count, and the people go and count. Everyone goes back to their hometown without question. It'd be like our family returning back to California, if the census would require that, to go back to our place of birth. But consider the order of importance. Where does Luke start? With Caesar. For the world, the great king has spoken, and the people listen. For the nation of Israel, it's just another person ruling over them, demanding they submit. The first king is Caesar. The second king is King David, the great king of Israel. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because though he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And as a reader of Luke's gospel, there are lots of terms and places in those just short few verses that shed light on where the text is leading us, where the Bible has taken us to, to get us to this point, focusing on King David as the center of this story and his lineage. Where Joseph, he leads his legal wife to Bethlehem, where they resided in Galilee in the north, in the town of Nazareth. And they were from this no-name town of Nazareth, and they went back to Bethlehem in the south. It would have been nice for Caesar to have waited for the birth to actually take place before he called them to travel back further south. The journey would have been made probably by foot, maybe by horse, but probably by foot. Would have taken nine, it would have been 90 miles, taken four or five days, probably a little longer with an extremely pregnant woman. But they go to Judea, the region of Israel where the town of Bethlehem was located, because that's where King David was from. And as readers, we're to get some chills in reading this. The Messiah is coming exactly where he was supposed to come, in Bethlehem. We learn about David first in the book of Ruth. You might be familiar with this great small book of the Old Testament. Ruth's husband dies and Boaz takes her in as his wife. And Ruth 4 ends with this, the first mention of David in the Bible. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. We learn about David and his call as king, replacing Saul. And David was a man after God's own heart. And David ruled Israel. And God made a covenant with Israel, with David in particular. And Femi helped us to see this last week from 2 Samuel chapter 7, the climax of David's kingship, where God says to David this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Where God's control is over all of these kings, Caesar and David. Where you have Ruth starting David's lineage. You have the climax of 2 Samuel, Samuel 7, and then you have David lineage, the Messiah to be born, we celebrate in Luke chapter 2. 
Isaiah 11.1 1 prophesied, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which is David's father, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Where Matthew's Gospel says that this is a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. The Hebrew word netzer is the root word for branch in that Isaiah passage. It's also the same root word in the town name of Nazareth. Jesus is from a Nazarene from Bethlehem. And Jesus would be born in this ancestral birthplace of King David, but he would also be from a small and forgotten town of Nazareth. Caesar's the first king. David is the second. God's providential hand is leading and guiding all of these things, and we are at the final chapter, the end, the bookend of King David and his Messiah to be promised to come through his lineage arriving. And God coordinates the events of Mary and Joseph under the guidance of the Caesar to end up in Bethlehem, the town of David, because it's time for the third king, the most important king in all of the Bible to arrive, King Jesus. The reason why we celebrate Christmas. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So real circumstances lead a real family to a place where a real birth takes place. The world would prioritize Caesar and then maybe a little bit of King David and end up with Jesus, probably ignored, disregarding him like many in our world do today. He's a helpless baby from a no-name town born in another no-name town. Conclusions in our world would be to just have another day to celebrate with family, invite them over, have a great meal, maybe have some presents. But for God's people, it's the opposite. Jesus is the king from the line of David. Caesar is his tool used by God to bring about these events in accordance with God's world. Our Advent series started with our reminder of our agony of sin, our anticipation from God to fulfill and keep His promises, the announcement of Jesus' birth to relieve our agony. In this evening, friends, we finally have His arrival. Luke wants us to focus on the third king, the creator of the world, God Himself. Their journey may have been long and hard for Mary, and for Joseph, the couple submitted to Caesar and is part of David's family. But God the Father is orchestrating everything. Verse 7 ends with Mary giving birth to her firstborn son, whom we know as God's only begotten son, Jesus. King Jesus is different. Caesar is powerful in the world, and David is important to the Jewish people. But Jesus is God's son, God in the flesh, always ruling and always reigning. The circumstances around Jesus' birth point to his humility, not power, not notoriety. Mary gives birth and lays him in a manger because there's no place for them. We know the story in the end. Kings sit on thrones. They're born in castles. They arrive with pomp and circumstance. They don't arrive at Motel 6 without a place for them to sleep. They aren't put in a feeding trough for animals. Because so many people traveled to Bethlehem for this census, so you remember, all the descendants of these particular 
people who lived in Bethlehem had to go back. So there was logistically no place for them. They, all the rooms in the public place to stay were taken. It's not like Gandalf sitting at the end. There is no, you shall not pass when you enter. Oh, I messed that whole thing up. All the beds were taken. But don't think Jesus was born in a barn, although I think Jesus born in a snowy hillside with a bright red barn like a Vermont scene would probably be a great photo. That's not what it looked like. Joseph and Mary were from Bethlehem. They had family that probably still lived there. So they probably went and stayed with their family. The manger is where animals would get their food or water. It was probably in a sheltered area, attached to the home or part of a cave out of the cold, but still within the walls of this home. The house was probably full of other travelers from the family who came to visit, where animals were kept inside the home to keep the house warm when it was cool. He's more important than the smell. And maybe some of us realize that because it's been so cold. Although I did get to have a dig on one of my friends who lives in Tennessee and it was a balmy 24 degrees down there today. Unlike Caesar and David though, King Jesus was born and started his life on the earth in the most humble circumstances. Micah 5.2 describes the town he came to. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who is too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from anxious days. The most important man to ever live comes into the world as God, taking on flesh the most humble circumstances in the most humble place. And Advent reminds us of our agony and our sin. God's faithfulness in anticipating a Savior. God being faithful in announcing that Savior would be born of a virgin named Mary and now the humble arrival of God's own Son. At the time, the birth of Jesus was the greatest miracle in the history of the world. God became man, adding to His divinity humanity. Jesus, He wasn't created. He has always existed as God, but only God Himself could cover an infinite amount of sins against an infinitely holy God. Man needed to pay the penalty for sin against that holy God, and so Jesus, the perfect substitute as God and man, took on flesh and a helpless babe to pay that penalty for our sin. J.I. Packer helps us summarize the importance of the Incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh. It says that Jesus is one divine human person and two natures, man and God. The two natures are united in personal being, fully God and fully man. And Jesus lived his life on earth as God without sin, but also as man, tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Some 30 years after Jesus' birth, he would end up on a Roman cross, though innocent, dying a criminal's death, satisfying the wrath of God upon us who believe. King Jesus' birth happened in humility, in a quiet stable, in an obscure, in an obscure village, after his mother and adoptive father traveled from an even more and remote village of Nazareth. His life is marked with humility. After his death, he was buried in an obscure grave. He didn't remain in the grave, though. He 
had an even greater miracle that took place and he rose from the dead. Friends, maybe you want a Caesar to just control everything. Maybe you want a king like David, someone of your own people who would conquer your enemies. But you need Jesus, the true king. He's the suffering servant. He's not the king who proudly comes in all of his glory. He's the king who sets aside his glory to become like us, to die for us, to raise, to give us newness of life. Paul says this of Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't lord it over people and act like a Caesar. He didn't come as a conqueror like David. He came in humility. Because his humility continued throughout his life, Paul says this about Jesus' resurrection. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Church, this Christmas, your King has arrived. If he's your King, worship him. If he's not, let Paul's words be an admonishment that every knee will bow like it would have had to do, or like we all would have had to with Caesar and David. Consider Jesus' kingship in his life. Believe in him as a substitution for your sins and receive the eternal life that God promises to give you before it's too late. King Jesus was born in a small forgotten place, showing that he has not forgotten you and I. You haven't escaped his eyes. You aren't too small to be disregarded. No one is outside of God's reach for salvation. King Jesus, though born and placed in a manger, is the king that we need. He created this world we live in. He created you and he's in control of everything. Micah 5, 4 says, And he shall stand as shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure for now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Church, he cares about you. He reigns forever. He conquered the grave. He will never leave you nor forsake you. His name is great. He is the best king. He's your king. And so let's worship him in the majesty the King Jesus deserves. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these reminders in your word of the humility that your son came in laying aside his divinity to take on flesh, to become like us, to die in our place, to rise from the grave. Whereas kings normally arrive in worship, God, you came through your son on a quiet night 
in a small town to mark your ministry of humility and service and sacrifice. But God, we know that your son rose and we believe that. We know that he sits upon the throne ruling and reigning over all the earth. And so God, we want to give you the praise that you are due because you are God and we are not. And so God, we ask that you would help us to worship you for all that you are and all that you do this night, but also every day that we have breath. And we pray this in Jesus' name.